When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to How To Money, a financial education podcast for young Australians aimed at opening up the conversation around money. In each episode, your host, Kate Campbell, brings in a variety of guests to explore everything from buying shares to starting your own business, all with the aim of kickstarting your personal finance journey. Just a quick reminder that everything we cover in this podcast is for financial education purposes only, and we are not giving you any advice. If you do want advice, please seek the help of a qualified and competent professional and do some research. Remember, it's your money, so take control. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me on the How To Money podcast today. My pleasure, Kate. It's great to have you on the show today and talk about quite a popular requested topic, which is robo advisors and different investment options. So before we dive into that, I'd love to get started with a bit on your backstory and how you ended up starting StockSpot. Uh, Sure, Kate. So, I mean, I started my investing journey pretty young. I I learned uh, a little bit about the share market when I was about 10 years old, and that got me really fascinated about investing and, and how shares worked and how they were priced. And all through high school and university, I was trading shares, uh, entering ASX share competitions. Um, I was lucky enough to win it a, a few times, and that got me into some great internships and you know other other great learnings. Um, I started my you know, proper career, I guess you'd say, um, as a portfolio manager at UBS, um, the big Swiss bank, where they had a team dedicated to essentially trading the bank's own capital, um, known as proprietary trading, uh, which helped me learn you know even more about different asset classes and how they interacted and you know how to arbitrage different markets, you know make. You know, low risk profit from you know different opportunities, but it also really opened my eyes working in that professional world to you know really how sophisticated you need to be in order to do well from an active trading or active investing perspective. You know how few people are able to do that, and it always it didn't really correlate in my mind because all of the advertising and, and you know news I, I saw out there kind of made it seem like to mum and dad investors that they should be trying to pick stocks and time the market. When really, you know, only a very small number of people should be trying to do that. And most of the people investing, you know, if they're really just looking to build long-term wealth, should be keeping things really simple, uh, investing in low-cost index funds, you know, not really tweaking their portfolios too much, just making sure they're well diversified, that their costs are really low, that they're automating the right sort of behavior, you know, topping up regularly and not getting scared when markets fall. And I think that's what inspired me to start the business was just I couldn't understand why this wasn't common knowledge. And, you know, every stockbroker out there was telling everyone something quite different that, you know, really wasn't helping them, you know, achieve their best outcomes. Mm, Absolutely. And I think robo-advisors are are quite a unique solution to that. And uh, they have sort of brought more knowledge about exchange-traded funds, which uh, were for a long, quite a long time, like an industry secret. And so I was wondering if you could sort of elaborate a little bit further on what robo-advisors are and how they're different from other investment options such as managed funds or investing directly in shares yourself. 
Sure. And I mean, first of all, on ETFs, I think you're right. I mean, when I started Stockspot, I think ETFs in Australia were only about 8 billion. Mm. Um, and, and to me, you know, that was an enormous opportunity because in other parts of the world, even Canada, which is sort of similar, similar size country and share market and GDP, you know, was already, I think, close to 100 billion at, at that point. So to me, it just seemed like we were way behind the eight ball on this fantastic new product. You know, I really thought the reason for that was because of distribution. These ETFs had done a decent job in starting to educate financial advisors who were the typical distribution for, you know, investments in Australia, but no one was really going to directly educate and, and help individual investors learn about them and how they can use them and how they can benefit them. So for me, that was the opportunity and, and really something that other robo-advisors around the world, and we weren't the first, there were a few in the US ahead of us, you know, saw a similar opportunity. So, you know, to, to answer your sort of question, robo-advice, you know, has seems to take on quite a broad definition in, in Australia. But really, um, if you look at kind of global robo-advisors, what they all have in common is that they are, a, you know, an online business that allows consumers to directly invest in a diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds, um, usually matched to their, you know, risk capacity and time horizon. So there's usually a level of personalization. And, and these strategies have been, you know, time-tested investment strategies shown over, you know, many decades or, you know, even 100 years to be the sort of most sensible way to gradually build wealth in the share market. And these robo-advisors, you know, like Stockspot or others around the world, then try and really simplify the process for people, automate as much as possible so people don't need to waste a lot of time, keep costs down as much as possible, and really try and create a really clean and simple and an enjoyable investment experience for people which, you know, really is quite different, I think, to the two other options that you mentioned. Well, the traditional options, which would be to see a financial advisor, you know, usually you'd have to go into an office and, you know, there'd be a lot of paperwork. It was quite an, an old school sort of style process um, that I think, you know, doesn't really resonate with a lot of the younger people out there. Or there was the other alternative of do-it-yourself investing. And I think that's one where I saw a big opportunity you know, one of the first customers of Stockspot and really who I built it for originally was my then girlfriend, who's now my wife. And, and she worked not in finance, but in um, advertising. Um, so she knew very little about investing. She had all of her money parked in a high interest um, cash savings account. She felt like she should be doing something else with it, but she didn't really know what that was. She didn't really have the confidence to go set up a an account with an online broker because she was worried about you know losing her money or taking too much risk. And so she was kind of stuck in this limbo land of, you know, having not a lot of opportunity to improve her wealth or grow her savings so she could afford a house deposit or something else in the future because she was only really earning, you know, a couple of percent a year of interest in the bank. Mm. So, you know, I, I think that's kind of the, the problem that robo-advisors have tried to solve is how can we make investing a bit more easy and accessible to anyone, you know, even people who historically haven't had a lot of interest in investing or picking shares or, you know, trading shares, but realise that investing is a pretty um, smart thing to do over the long run. Mm, and I think they have really solved that solution because a lot of people don't actually want to spend hours poring over uh, annual reports and investing in individual shares or trying to pick the right managed fund to invest in. So robo-advisors, it's kind of a simple solution where you can work out what your risk profile is. I think most robo-advisors will have some form of risk assessment that I've seen in Australia and then actually just sort of get a sort of set portfolio and then you can just sort of run with it rather than having to work out and make a decision because I think we often get caught up with that decision fatigue and it 
can get really hard to actually do anything with your money and you end up leaving it in a savings account for years. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think, I mean, even if you take that one step further, I think investing is one of the few places in this world where actually you, if you do more and put more effort and work into it, it doesn't actually um, guarantee you a better result. And in many cases, it, it actually leads to a worse result. So, I mean, we've got a bit of a mantra, which is that the, the less you do, the more you get and, and the boring is brilliant. Um, and when it comes to investing, I think that's really the case for a lot of people is you can actually do a lot less than all of those people that are working really hard, you know, trading shares or reading annual reports and actually get a better return. And I think, I mean, that's, I think, a message that more people would be encouraged to invest if they understood that, that you can basically do nothing at all and do better than all the people that are working really hard. Mm, and that's sort of a common misconception that it is something that you have to be really uh, savvy with investments and finance to do in like a simple investment solution can often lead to the best results over a long term for you. Yeah, I mean, I think it was Schwab in the US released an internal study that showed that the best performers, even on an online brokerage platform, were either the ones who had lost their passwords or the people (laughs) who had died. And and so it wasn't the active traders who were on there trading every day. It was the people that weren't trading, that weren't even logging in, that actually performed best. Mm, Absolutely. Now, one a common question I often get from listeners about robo advisors is regarding their safety and how they're regulated in Australia. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit further about how they're regulated in Australia and how clients' assets are protected. Obviously, it's sort of different depending on different companies. Um, sure. Well, I mean, there's probably two aspects of regulation when it comes to robo advisors, and I'm um, you know pretty passionate about both of them because we were the first robo advisor in Australia. I spent a lot of time with the regulator ASIC in the early years, trying to explain to them what the model was, you know, why it was safe and why it was in the best interest of consumers. You know, my pitch to them was that it opens up investing to more people. You know, it removes a lot of the conflicts of interest that existed, you know, in traditional financial advice where they basically just sell you products because they get paid from them. And um, it's it's very safe. So on, on the safety, you know, something that was very important for me when I set up the business was that when we do create accounts for people, those assets aren't sort of mixed up with other people's. They're actually individually owned by the end customer. So if anything ever happened to StockSpot, it actually means that there would be no impact for our end clients. They could simply transfer their holdings from the registry or the exchange to another broker and still own the same investments. So from an investment safety perspective, really robo-advice is no different to owning shares with a stockbroker where you have your own individual, it's called a holder identification number or HIN, which is the safest way to own investments, um, at least in Australia. So there's that sort of side of the regulation, which is more the security of your assets. And then there's the other side, which is the actual advice that we provide to clients. So um, Stockspot and, and a few of the others out there, we actually provide personal advice to each client. So we're actually regulated um, just as a financial advisor would be where we have to meet the best interest duty. We need to provide a advice document when people join us. And we actually review that advice document each year and tell people if we think they should be changing strategy. So therefore, we, you know, we can kind of meet our regulatory obligations to make sure that we're giving clients the right advice. So for instance, if someone comes to us and tells us that they have a lot of high interest debts, for instance, you know, let's say you've got a, a personal loan where you're, you're paying 15% a year in interest, our advice would actually be that investing isn't right until you've paid off that loan. You should be paying off the loan first because you're probably not going to make as much investing as, as that 15%. 
So yeah, we, we are basically regulated as a asset manager in, in terms of how we own the assets and also a financial advisor in terms of how we provide advice to clients. And because the regulations around this didn't really exist when we launched, we kind of tried to fit into other you know, regulations. I, I guess, you know, when, when ASIC, the regulator, was coming up with the rules back in the 80s and 90s, they probably never thought that financial advice could be provided online as opposed to, you know, face-to-face. So they had a, a big consultation um, process a few years ago where we made a submission and we were quite involved. And as a result of that, they have now um, released specific regulation around providing digital advice, um, which we, you know, we obviously fit under. So it's an area that, yeah, is regulated, you know, in a few different ways. And, and yeah, I mean, any robo-advisor that people use, you know, should be meeting those requirements. Yeah, and I find it it's really interesting, the digital advice and being able to provide it in this way because a lot of uh, listeners do tell me when they go and talk to a financial advisor, they're really shocked to find out how expensive it costs just to get that initial statement of advice. So things like robo-advisors are a really interesting way of providing maybe a limited section of personal advice still in a regulated way but much more affordably well you probably don't even charge for the initial risk assessment do you yeah i mean that's that's right and i think that was the problem my wife saw originally was that she couldn't get advice about investing because to see a financial advisor you know would have cost her you know upwards of $2000 just for a first consult and i think mm. for most people that's not something they're prepared to pay when they you know, don't have a lot of confidence about the benefit it's going to bring. And so, and I think especially the younger generation now, like we want to kind of test things gradually rather than commit up front. We want to kind of mm. get a sense for how things kind of feel and, and how they look before we commit more. And I feel like traditional financial advice is very much, uh, you know, you have to commit from day one. You know, whereas what we see is uh, most of our clients, you know, even, even if they have $100,000 to invest, they usually won't put it in all on, on day one. They might put in $2,000 on day one you know, see how it goes for a while and then gradually top up. So I think, yeah, Rob Advice kind of opens up access to people that probably weren't getting advice about investing just because, unfortunately, they couldn't be serviced. And, you know, that's not um, that's not having a go at the financial advice industry. It is very costly to run a financial advice business. You need a, you know, you need a premises. You need to manually write all of the documentation. Like you need to hire power planners and financial planners you know, there's a lot of expenses from the regulation perspective as well. So unfortunately, it, it's a difficult business to be in because, um, you know, the cost of your time and all of the other resources means that the end customer needs to pay thousands of dollars. Um, you know, I, I think like a lot of other technology, what automating that can mean is is you can suddenly spread that cost out over tens of thousands of people and therefore everyone pays a lot less and can still access a similar quality of advice. Mm. Yeah, and I, I'm definitely interested to see sort of how that industry changes in the next few years because uh, I do hope that it's going to become more affordable for individuals to get financial advice because it's it's really important. It's just expensive. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I mean, my vision for what financial advisors will become in the future is that they'll become more like curators of the best um, products and services out there. So rather than being aligned to a particular business like they have been in the past and, and they basically are just you know, even if they don't feel that way, they're structured as salespeople for a business's products. They're, mm. they're basically paid by the end customer to go out there and find the best products out there. You know, where is the best insurance product? Where's the best mortgage product? And, and these hopefully are all, you know, different products at different places. And you're paying for the financial advisor's expertise in finding them all and matching them to you. And, and I think people would pay for that. 
Mm, absolutely. So do you find a lot of your customers use a robo-advisor such as Stockspot as their sole investment portfolio or do they do they use it in conjunction with a broader diversified portfolio? I mean, I think it would sort of vary quite a bit. So our portfolios are already very diversified. I mean, you, you can add other sort of pieces to a portfolio, but you won't get a lot more benefit from a diversification point of view. Diversification is just about spreading your risk. And our portfolios already spread your risk across thousands of different shares and, and, that, and you know, hundreds of different bonds. And so adding a few more shares here or there probably won't give you a lot of diversification benefit. Where we do probably have customers doing other types of investing is, you know, if they're investing in, in for instance, property, that's not something we offer. So we might have clients that also have investment properties. Or if they are investing in markets, you know, often we'll have clients that have part of their portfolio allocated to an area they're particularly passionate about or, or really care about or, or feel they're knowledgeable about. So they may own a few shares outside of out of Stockspot or they might, you know, a few years ago we had clients who told us they own some cryptocurrency outside of Stockspot, which isn't something we offer. So I think there may be thematic investments that people would own outside of us, but really the service is built so it provides all of the diversification you need. We also, because we realized that clients wanted a little bit of extra say over where they're investing, um, for, for clients investing over $50,000, we allow them to bolt onto their portfolio different themes that they're passionate about. So if you want more, more of a tilt towards, uh, let's say, US shares in your portfolio, you can do that. Or if, if you're a retiree and you want more dividends, um, you can add a bit more in there. So we've tried to add a little bit of extra personalization in there for people that want a little bit more say. But it's never, we're never going to offer down to the granularity of buying individual shares um, just because we don't think we can add a lot of value there. And, and, and really, if customers want to do that, they, they should um, yeah, do that outside of us. Mm. And one question I have had a few times on diversification is if you're trying to build a diversified portfolio and you want to invest primarily in ETFs, do you need multiple ETFs that track, for example, the Australian Stock Exchange top 200 shares? Because are you under-diversified if you only invest in one Australian ETF and one US ETF? Good question. And, and it is one that we get as well. It surprises me a little bit, but it does make sense. I mean, we're, we're always preaching diversification. So it makes some sort of sense that you should also be diversifying into different ETFs. Hmm. And unfortunately, the practical benefit is, is not, you know, there, there isn't really any practical benefit. So if you're investing into a a BlackRock ETF investing in the top 200 Australian shares and a Vanguard ETF investing in the top 200 Australian shares, you basically just own two lots of the exact same thing. Mm. If you're buying them yourself, it means you're going to have to pay brokerage twice, you know, cross bidder spreads twice. It, it's really, um, you know, not really necessary and not really beneficial. Where diversification does work is if the underlying investments are different. Um, so if you're investing in one Australian ETF and one global ETF, that, that does add a lot diversification benefit i think people have also said to us like well what happens if um you know if vanguard goes bust or blackrock goes bust you know don't don't i want to spread my money across some of these different providers and i think the reality is that risk is very very low and, and the beauty of etfs is they're structured in a way that doesn't rely on the financial capacity of the the manager of those etfs to survive because your assets are ring fenced um, so i as an investor wouldn't be too worried about just selecting one ETF for each asset class. It's definitely what we do for clients. Yeah, there's not a lot of benefit to spreading it out within um, the same underlying shares. Because mm, sometimes when you start learning about diversification and trying to 
put it into practice in your portfolio, you can end up going down quite a rabbit hole in how, to what extent do you keep diversifying? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've seen out there a lot of very complex portfolios and we often have high net worths come to us with, you know, millions, millions of dollars of portfolios and show us all of the tens of different ETFs and managed funds and, and shares in there. And when we actually break it down, they just own a very similar portfolio to the stock spot portfolios, which only have five assets because they own the same underlying shares, maybe in different weights. Um, so I think it's easy to um, be a bit misguided and think by just adding lots of different things, it adds diversification. But it's really not about just adding lots of different things. It's about really what's inside those things that you've bought. And if you're buying ETFs that already have a lot of different shares inside of them, that, that's enough. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't need to just keep on adding and adding and adding. It's not going to add any benefit. And if anything, I think it can give you the false sense of being diversified. Mm-hmm. You know, I've also seen a scenario where you know, people own a NASDAQ ETF and also an S&P 500 ETF and, you know, and, and a few others that are all in a similar vein. And then they're surprised when they all basically move in tandem. It kind of makes sense that they move in tandem because the S&P 500, I think now, you know, 23 or 25% of it is these large tech stocks. And, and so, you know, clearly it's going to move in a similar direction to technology shares, if, if not exactly the same. Um, so, yeah, it's important to understand the underlying investments, not just the, the name of the ETF. Yeah, absolutely. And something else I thought it would be really interesting to have your thoughts on, because I don't think it's an area we talk about too much, is when you should investors should think about rebalancing their portfolio and how often it should be done. Yeah, it's another one we get a lot of questions about. So there's a there's quite a lot of theory that has been sort of published on this and a lot of academic research. But the basic concept of rebalancing is not really to time the market or work out when to be in and out, which I think a lot of people think it is. It's really just about keeping your portfolio consistent with your risk profile over time. Mm. Um, so to give you an example, Kate, like if someone starts with a portfolio that's you know very simply 50% in shares and 50% in bonds, um, over time typically what happens is because shares do better than bonds, the share component of your portfolio is going to get bigger and bigger. So that means after 20 years, if you do nothing, that share part of your portfolio might now be 90% and bonds might only be 10%. And, and in that um, scenario, if there's a big market crash, you're going to not be very well protected because you've only got 10% of bonds in your portfolio. Um, so the idea of rebalancing is to per- periodically reset your portfolio back to the original weights so that your portfolio isn't taking on too much risk and you can weather, you know, different, different scenarios in the market. Now, some people choose to do that more often. Some people choose to do it less often. Um, some people choose to do it um, based on a time period. So you could say every January, I'm going to rebalance my portfolio. We take a slightly different approach, which is a threshold-based approach. So we don't look at it once a year or once a month. We look at it every day, but only rebalance when assets move a certain distance away from their target weight. And that distance varies based on the portfolio and, and the asset in the portfolio. But generally, you don't want to rebalance too often. Otherwise, you're leading to a lot of you know, capital gains and tax and transaction costs. Um, you want to actually let asset classes move a certain distance. You know, typically that might be, let's say, somewhere between 15 to 30%. You want them to be able to move before you really make any tweaks. But then when you do rebalance, it's also important to have a systematic process to do it. So a good example is we actually didn't rebalance any of our client portfolios for, for um, a couple of years because, you know, shares and bonds were moving up together in the lead up to this year. But then in March 2020, 
Markets obviously went pretty crazy. The share market fell something like 35% over about a month. And other asset classes like gold and bonds were pretty stable or some of them rose. And as a result, what we saw in our portfolios is actually the bond part of and the gold part of our portfolios became bigger than that it really should be. Mm. Um, so what we did then was harvest some of the gains in those assets and reinvest them into shares to basically take advantage of the big market dip. And I think the benefit of automating that is emotionally, I think it would be very difficult for a lot of people to be rebalancing after a big share market crash like we saw this year. You know, I know most discretionary fund managers, those that are trying to time the market, didn't get it right and they weren't rebalancing then. They were waiting for things to get better. But unfortunately, by the time things get better, the market is already reflecting that and prices have usually already risen. And so having a systematic process means that you can basically take advantage of times where, you know, people are very frightened and running away from the market and you can buy those shares at a discount and that's going to help um, boost your returns in the future. So that's the process we take, but rebalancing conceptually is just about keeping the risk in your portfolio pretty consistent over time. Mm, because if you don't relook at your portfolio, you might have set up the perfect risk profile for you five years ago, but now it could be in a completely different category. It might be a really high risk portfolio when you only ever wanted to be sort of a balanced or a conservative portfolio. So I guess it's a good thing to sort of maybe not look at it too often, but still come back and review each year. Yeah, I mean, there's two levels of review. So one is just checking your current asset allocation versus your current risk profile. And that's something, I mean, we do daily, but anyone could you know, do monthly if they were managing their own money. But then there's also the other side of it, is, which is making sure that your portfolio is consistent with your current risk profile. So, you know, every, you know, we, we do it every year with clients or invite them to do it often. You should be really updating your investment time horizon, you know, how long are you looking to invest for, how comfortable would you be if there was a market fall. And if the answers to those questions change substantially, you maybe should be not rebalancing your portfolio, but actually changing the weights of the assets to be the more defensive or more growth oriented. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing that's really helped me the last few years when I've been getting started, um, sort of finding my feet with investing is automating as much as I can. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on regular or automated investing to help investors sort of stop falling prey to their behavioral biases or their emotions? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I think it's a, a great thing to learn. And I'm sure like it's something listeners have thought about. And I know you, you've obviously thought about it, which is that, you know, it, it's one, we're all busy in our lives. And so actually having the time to think about when you should invest is difficult. And and it, it's, it's um, pretty well cited that if you're not sort of focused on it, you'll probably forget. Mm. So automation, I think, is hugely beneficial because what we know is that to grow your wealth investing, one of the best things you can do is just set up a habit of continuing to top up, to keep on adding over time, because then you really enjoy the power of compound growth. And, you know, just having a lump sum is great, but the power of regularly topping up means that you'll have a multiple of what you would have in the future. So automation is great because, it, you know, these days it's quite easy to set up with your bank or, you know, whoever you're, you're investing with to just siphon off some money from your paycheck or from your account wherever you can. Um, on a weekly or monthly or six monthly basis. So you don't even need to think about it. Um, and, and therefore that sort of, it, it sort of sets up a good habit from the start. And I think in life, wherever you can kind of create a good habit um, and automate that good habit, you know, it's going to have a, a multiple of the effect down the path for you. And investing is one of those areas where it may not have been easy in the past, but these days it's pretty easy, easy to do. For instance, in from my account, I have a direct debit set up. Um, every month. So every month on the 15th, 
you know, money goes in, um, gets invested, you know, I don't even think about it. Mm, absolutely. And I think that's sort of the best way to do it, especially uh, if you're leading a busy life and you don't want to think about it too often. Now, before we finish up, I was wondering if you could share your best piece of investing advice for young Australians. Well, yeah, good question. Um, I think, yeah, I've invested for a few years and learned some hard lessons along the way. But I mean, the one thing that comes up over and over again that I think is just really important is that, you know, investing isn't kind of a race and there's really no way to kind of accelerate things without really taking a lot of risk. And so keep it simple, keep it boring diversify wildly, keep your costs low and just set and forget. You know, it may seem like a really boring strategy, but over the long run, it will lead to brilliant results. And and so just keep those consistent habits up and yeah, just uh, let the money work for you rather than working for it. Absolutely. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing a, a bit of your wisdom and your experience with Stockspot. I was wondering just before we finish up, are you able to just sort of provide some uh, links if people want to learn a bit more about you and Stockspot? Uh, sure. I mean, I'm sure you can um, you know, p- provide them as well in the notes. But yeah, Stockspot, you can visit to learn more, more about our business at stockspot.com.au. Um, I also have a YouTube channel for anyone interested in learning about investing, which is um, Chris Brikey Stockspot. Um, or otherwise, you know, if you want to sort of see my thoughts day to day, you know, I'm also on Twitter. So you can find me there. Wonderful. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. And uh, yeah, great seeing your uh, investing journey uh, progress as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the How To Money podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and send any questions our way via www.howtomoney.online. You can also catch us on Twitter and Instagram at howtomoneyaus, and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to the How To Money Podcast.